Amen. So good to see everybody here this morning. If you may be seated, if you have your t- if you have your Bibles, we want to get right into the Word of the Lord. I don't want to hold you long this morning. In Luke chapter fourteen, verse twenty-seven, we only have one passage of Scripture for our text. It just says this: Luke chapter fourteen, verse twenty-seven. And whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he cannot be my disciple. May the Lord add his blessing to the word of the Lord this morning. The first thing I'd like to do is to welcome everybody here to the Easter service of the Palace of 2022. It's much different than 2020 when I was standing up here preaching to a a, a camera and there was nobody here. You are so beautiful here this morning. And I'm so thankful that we're here to celebrate the risen Lamb. How many is here to celebrate the risen Lamb of Jesus Christ? I know that the Lord is going to bless you here this morning. He blessed in our early service. We had a packed out house this morning, and, and the Lord just ministered and touched us, so I know that you're going to be blessed as well. But today's sermon is not going to be a typical Easter message. For 35 years, I preached pretty well, pretty well everything about the resurrection, the death, the burial of the Lord, and all of that kind of a thing. But we're going to go a little bit different. We're going to add that in there, but we're going to be a little bit different in our approach here today. Every year across America, thousands of people gather into the house of worship to celebrate or to at least observe what we call Easter. And we all know what Easter is. It is all about the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There was the Apostle Paul that said in 1 Corinthians 15 and 14, and if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and our faith is also in vain. So much of the time, we love to focus on the resurrection because the resurrection of Jesus secures our salvation. He also says in that same chapter in verse 17, and if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you're still yet dead in your sins. If Christ had not risen from the dead, folks, you and I would be dead in our trespasses and sin. Are you thankful for the resurrection of our living Savior, Jesus Christ? Oh, come on, you can be that. Be thankful of the resurrection. His resurrection was proof of him overcoming the sting of death, which was the wages or the punishment or the penalty of our sin. The Bible tells us in Romans 6 and 23, the wages of sin is death. And we know that the soul that sinneth it shall surely die. And we know that we've all sinned and that we've all come short of the glory of God. And so Paul said in the book of Corinthians, so therefore since we've all sinned, then death has passed upon all men. So we need help. We needed a Savior. And Jesus Christ came and paid the penalty for our sin and died on that cross. Romans 6, 23 did not just stop about the wages of sin is death, but he put a but in there. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. His empty tomb is a symbol of his victory over death, hell, and the grave. That gives us victory over death, hell, and the grave as well. He purchased our eternal salvation by dying in our place upon that cross by being our substitute and being punished for our sin. And then he sealed the deal by raising from the dead and overcoming death, hell, and grave and went and sat at the right hand of the Father to make intercessory as our high priest for us. Through Jesus Christ's resurrection, folks, we have victory over all sin. His resurrection is proof of our salvation and it secures our hope of eternal life. I praise God for that hope. How many praise God for the hope that lies in Jesus here this morning? Amen. 
He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why there's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we can be saved other than through the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear in John 14 and 6. He says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way to salvation. He's the only Savior of the world. He is the door to heaven. And if you want to obtain heaven and eternal life, you got to go through Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Praise your Savior here today. Give him glory for what he's done. Can I have an amen? And if there's ever a time that we need to recognize God and recognize the gospel of Jesus Christ in our country, it is now. The longer that we live and the further away from the cross that we get, the more that we drift away from the salvation that that cross provides. Our nation, the land that we love, America the beautiful, it's not so beautiful anymore. Our culture has become darkened and we're seeing things that we thought that we would never see in our lifetime. Who would have ever thought that our own people, our own, own people of our own nation would burn down our cities and loot and steal from one another and then uh, the biggest part of the population approve of it and justify it and there's very few to no arrests made justice has fallen in the streets who would have ever thought that we would see the day that we would elect a supreme court justice to the highest court in the land that cannot even define who or what a woman is who would have ever thought that in certain American schools uh, that they're teaching children that they were born that, that when they were born that their gender was actually guessed by the doctor and the parent and they're teaching them that as they grow older they can define who they are and identify with the gender that they actually want to be. Who would have ever thought that they're now teaching that girls can become boys and boys can become girls as early as three to five years old in preschools across our country? Who would have ever believed that they're trying to pass legislation that gives a parent the right to abort or to kill a child up to three months even after birth? In other words, if you have a child and that child inconveniences you, you don't like its color of its hair, you don't like its gender, or it just bothers you, you can have it killed up to three months and nothing will ever have been said. That's legislation that they're trying to pass. Who would have ever thought that we would have congressmen and senators and lawmakers that would literally try to defund our police department? America is in need of a revival, and without it, we are all in trouble. Can I have an amen? Are you alive out there this morning? Are you with me? I told you this. This wasn't going to be a typical sermon. You hang with me because I got something to say here today from the Lord. Our culture is dark. How many believes that? How many believes our culture is darkened? It is sinful and it is and it is a, a cultural, it is our culture that has been formed by a people that has abandoned God. When the pilgrims came and landed on Plymouth Rock on the, May, on the Mayflower, as they landed, they joined together in what was called the Mayflower Compact in 1620. These are the words of the covenant that they made with each other when they arrived to this land. In the name of God, amen. Having undertaken for the glory of God and for the advancement of the Christian faith, do solemnly and mutually in the presence of God, covenant and combine ourselves together. They declared that they came to glory together for the glory of God and for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the reason this land was formed. And in 1643, just about 23 years later, as more and more people came 
came to this land up in New England, they formed what was called a confederation. It was called the New England Confederation. And the New England Confederation was the first written constitution of groups of people meeting together in, in 1643. And the New England Con Con uh, Confederation Constitution began like this. Whereas we are all came to these parts with one and the self-same end and aim, namely to advance the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ and enjoy the liberties of the gospel of peace. They also united in a common goal to worship God in holiness and hold to a gospel of purity that would produce peace and advance the kingdom of God. Patrick Henry said, if it, it cannot be emphasized too strongly or too often that this great nation was founded not by religionists but by Christians, not on religion but on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our forefathers understood that true freedom and liberties could only be obtained through Jesus Christ and where God would rule supreme over a nation. It was William Penn, founder of Pennsylvania, that said this, if we are not governed by tyrants, we will be ruled, uh, if we're not governed by God, we will be ruled by tyrants. In Proverbs 14 and verse 34, the Bible says, righteousness exalts a nation, but a sin is a reproach to any people. Psalms 9 and 17 says, the wicked shall be turned into hell and every nation that shall forget about God. It was James Madison that wrote, we have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government far from it, but we have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves according to the Ten Commandments of God. It has been said that America was built upon our Judeo-Christian values in which it was. The only difference between us and Israel is this. God chose Israel and made a covenant with them. It was an everlasting covenant and he will keep that covenant. You mark my word. However, America is a little bit different than that of Israel. I want you to know instead of God choosing America, America, as our forefathers came, chose God and there they made a covenant with him. And the nation will only be good and it will only stand as good as it is today only if we keep that commandment and be obedient to it. Under the Old Testament to break a covenant meant death. As a matter of fact, God would keep his part of the bargain. He even made a blood covenant with Abraham and he says, if I break this covenant, I'll die. I'll kill myself. God's faithful. How many knows he cannot lie? If God made you a promise, he'll come through. God is faithful even when we're unfaithful. God is a God of faithfulness. He's a God of truth and he made covenant with Israel and he's going to keep that covenant. But however, this is a little bit different. America made the covenant with God. So if we break the covenant, then we die according to the scripture. America has the death rattle because we have turned our back on God and we've not been obedient and we've not kept the covenants that our forefathers have made. Our culture has turned dark and we are seeing things decay. The destruction of our nation right before our eyes. The spirit of death, the spirit of hell, and the spirit of antichrist are being unleashed upon our nation like never before. You say, what kind of an Eastern message is this? We're here for hope. Well, I'm gonna give you hope in a minute, but there is provisions to that hope. There is conditions to that hope. Can I have an amen? Our hedge has been removed. Our favor has been diminished as a nation, as a people. If you can't see that, you are blind. We are living in a darkened time, the last days. And right here in the region of Popper Bluff alone, in this small little rural area, there has been five suicides in the last week and a half and many attempts that we don't even know anything about. We don't like talking about it. We want to ignore it. We want to sweep it under the rug. We don't like to see 
see it. We don't like to think about it. We don't like to really accept it as reality. But reality is this is not an uncommon thing anymore. Things like this is not just happening in the big cities. Uh, they're not happening in, the, in New York and, 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 and uh, uh, the different uh, big cities of Los Angeles and things like that. They're happening right here in the rural Ameri America of the United States of America called Poplar Bluff. It's right in our back door. It's right in our face. We're living under some hideous times. There is, there is demons and devils and doctrines of devils that's coming against it like never before. Principalities and powers and rulers of darkness. As a pastor, I have never had to counsel so much in my life of people that are coming into my office and sitting down from young to old, from female to male. They're sitting behind my desk and they're crying and they're weeping and they're saying, Pastor, this is what's going on. And I say, what's going on? Said, well, things is waking us up in the middle of the night. Noises and voices and we're seeing images and we're seeing demons and we're seeing things. And we're seeing shadows. It's scary. It's frightening. Never before have I been bombarded. Oh, it's always been around a little bit here and there, but I tell you, there is an unleash of hell upon America. There's an unleash of hell upon the church, but I got good news. The that stone was rolled away 2,000 years ago, and there is an answer, and there is a hope, and there is a resurrected Lord that's able to bring things to pass that he desires. Oh, would you give him another hand of praise? I'm about to preach here this morning. Hallelujah. We don't, want to, uh, we don't want to accept things that's going on. But why is all this stuff happening? Lawlessness, chaos, injustice, drugs rampant, teenage pregnancies high, people not willing to marry, and just on and on and on and on. All of these are signs of the last days, and we could give you hundreds of different other kinds of illustrations of how dark our culture has become. However, the problem is, not only has the culture turned dark, but sadly, in many cases, so has the church. Instead of the church changing the culture. It has adopted the culture into the church. Instead of the world being transformed and being influenced by the church and being re re regenerated, how many believe this? How many believe that when you get born again, old things are passed away and behold, all things become... How many, there, how many believe there's a change, a transformation that takes place when a person is saved? Do you still believe that? Do you still believe the gospel? How many believe it? Shout it out. Oh, Yes. The church has become influenced by the culture and it is being conformed to the world and instead of it conforming the world to the kingdom of God. Paul warned us about it. He gave us a warning and he gave us an exhortation. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of God. Here's our problem in America. We have a culture that loves to celebrate resurrection, and well, we should. Resurrection brings life, power, and excitement to any atmosphere. We want to be resurrected with Christ because he lives. We shall live also according to the scripture. But the problem is, while we want to be resurrected with Christ, we don't want to be crucified with him. We love the resurrection experience, but we despise the cross and dying out with him. We want to be identified with his resurrection, but we don't want to be identified with his death. We want to be identified as a Christian, but we do not want to embrace the commitment that it takes to be a Christian. In our culture, the resurrection is glorified while the cross is actually despised. And if we love the provision of the cross, but we, we love the provision of the cross, but not at the expense of us being nailed to it. I want to say that again because it's a powerful statement. I'll say it later. 
reminder. We love the provision of the cross, what it provides, salvation, but we don't love it at the expense of being nailed to it. We love deliverance that comes by resurrection, but we want to bypass dying out on the crucifixion with him. We love deliverance, we hate dying. We love salvation, but we hate sacrifice. We love promise, but we hate pain. We love the blessing of resurrection, but we don't want to bear the burden of the cross. Can I ask you a question here this morning and make you ponder and really think about this question? If Jesus carried and took your cross up Golgotha Hill and was nailed to it in your place, becoming your substitute, when it should have been you dying on that cross, when it should have been you beaten and whipped and stabbed and pierced and all that stuff, it, it, it should have been you paying for your sin, but Jesus said, give me your cross, son. He carried that cross up there and he nailed himself to that cross in your place. If he done that and he did do that, then can you not carry the burden of his cross and spread the kingdom of God for his glory here on earth in your lifetime? Can I have an amen? Luke 14 and 27, listen again, stout words. Whosoever does not bear his cross and come after me, he can't be my disciple. Listen to what Matthew 16, 24 says. Then Jesus said unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. To follow him is to obey him. To follow him is to take up his cross. To follow him is to deny yourself. That's true discipleship. That's true Christianity. This is the problem that we in American culture have. It looks at restraints as bondage and principles as imprisonment. Therefore, the millennials view the church as to be culturally irrelevant and outdated. They say that 60% of the millennials are turned off by the church and nine out of 10, 90% of them feel like they can achieve a good relationship with God and learn about Christianity and practice a Christian life without being engaged or being faithful in a church service. And yet the whole New Testament is about the church, the body of Christ, the ecclesia. The church is what Jesus died for. The church is what he's coming back after. Jesus loved the church. He died for it. And he's coming back after a church without spot or blemish or wrinkle or any such thing. According to Ephesians 5, 26, he called the church the pillar of the ground of truth. He called it the refuge, the hiding place, the sanctuary. It is known in scripture as the colonia, the fellowship and the mingling of the brethren. It is called the temple. It's called the house of God. It's called the dwelling place of the Lord. The Bible commands us to gather in it, to be obedient and to be faithful. Matter of fact, in Hebrews 10 and 25, the scripture says not to forsake the siblings of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see that day approaching. The more dark the culture gets, the more that we are to gather. However, to accommodate the culture, many churches are doing the absolute opposite. They average church meets now together less than two hours a week, they say. We have big, huge buildings laying empty six days a week and only meet for about two hours on a Sunday morning. Sunday night service Wednesday night services has all given way to so-called cultural relevance. Today's culture despises the church principles, rejects its standards, and ignores its biblical truth. They live and they work and they converse and they interact in the anti-Christian culture and they do not want to associate themselves with something that puts demands and restraints and commitment and sacrifice. They want to be avoid of anything that may cause them to be marginalized, criticized, or persecuted by the culture. And let me tell you, in this world, you shall have persecution as a believer. You got to make up your mind. You got to count your cause. Is it worth it to serve Jesus Christ? It's getting quiet in this house. 
As a matter of fact, many are embarrassed by spiritual churches and withdrawn, and they've even become elusive. They want to stay away from spiritual churches. They cannot adhere because their carnal mind is an image of God, and they're not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. What does that mean? They cannot comprehend spiritual things because they're carnal, and they, cannot, and they cannot understand spiritual things. These same people, they claim to love God. 80% of them pray. 80% pray. 28% read the Bible. And 28% actually give to the church, send money into the church. And though they despise the doctrines and the beliefs of the church, yet they cannot see that they have a doctrine and a belief of their own. It's called humanism. They love salvation, but they despise sanctification. They want to be saved, but not sold out to Christ. They want to be raised in power, but not sanctified in purpose. This culture has forgotten that salvation isn't just about ourselves and the forgiveness of sin and us being saved for the benefit of just missing hell. That's not what salvation's about. Thank God that when I get saved, I have the promise of eternal life and I miss hell and I go to heaven. But that's not what all my salvation's about. My salvation's about him. Can I have an amen? Romans 8 and 28 says, and we know that all things work together for the good of them that love the Lord and to them who? That are called according to his purpose. Can I tell you 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us, what, know ye not that your bodies is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you which you have of God, and it's not of yourself, for you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. It's odd, but today's doctrine is all about follow your dreams, pursue your desires, go get all the, that's what, that's what preachers are preaching behind their pulpits. Just follow your dream, follow your instinct, follow what you desire. And the truth of the matter is, the modern culture of relevant churches has become a motivational platform void of preaching so that they are appealing to the censor-seeking of church and they're telling them to pursue their dreams. And yet, it, it, my life ain't about pursuing my agenda. My life ain't about pursuing my dreams. My life ain't about pursuing what I desire. You know why? I'm to be crucified with Christ. I'm to be dead to myself. I have no rights. I'm a dead man according to the word of the Lord. The problem with this is that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 19 through 21, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of the world? Have not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. Did you know the art of preaching's almost gone? Did you know there's very few people that are getting up behind pulpits and saying, this declare the word of the Lord has become motivational. It's become all about the sensitive seeker. It's all about don't ruffle any feathers, don't make anybody, don't hurt anybody, don't challenge anybody. If you challenge somebody, they're, they're liable to get upset and leave. And we're more interested in about building a congregation than we are pleasing God. Is this a hard message? Yes, but hang with me. It's gonna get better. I said it's going to get better. You know what Paul said? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And he said, I don't want to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul made it plain that salvation isn't about ourselves doing our own thing, 
pursuing our own dreams. Listen to what Colossians 1.16 says. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions, or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. Do you not realize that you were created for him? We were not only created by him, but we created for him that our lives might bring glory and honor to his name. Our lives are to be a reflection of his beauty. Our lives are to be an image of who he is. We are to be salt. We are to be light in a darkened culture. We're the only epistle that people's going to read. We gotta have the light of Jesus in our lives. It was the psalmist that said in Psalms 37 and four, delight thyself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. What does that mean? If I come to get saved and I delight to have a new car, I delight to have a new house, yeah, God blesses us with good things. He holds withhold no good thing them to walk uprightly, but that's not what this scripture's saying, that if I'll delight to have all of these things, God will give them to me. This scripture's saying that if I will delight myself in the Lord, he will give me of his desires. His desires will be planted in my heart, and my desires will fade away, and his desires become my desire. Then I pursue his desire in my life. That's what the gospel's about, is giving yourself over to Jesus and not just having a savior, but making him Lord. Can I have an amen? We're to not only love his resurrection, but we're to cleave to his cross. There cannot be any resurrection where there's no death. You know what Paul said in Galatians 2.20? I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ liveth within me in the life that I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. He said, I'm crucified, I'm dead. I, I've been nailed to the cross with Jesus. Amen. I'd done an illustration one time on an Easter. I put a big old wooden cross on my back that I could barely carry. And I talked about how that, that cross, I'm nailed to it. And even though I'm crucified to it, that cross kept me from doing certain things. And I'd come up to the edge of the stage. I said, see, I can't even go down the steps. It's preventing me to go down. I can't walk. I can't do it. It was preventing. And let me tell you, if you're really, truly nailed to the cross of Jesus, it'll keep you from doing a lot of things you shouldn't be doing. If you're really crucified to the cross of Jesus, you wouldn't be saying things that you're saying. You wouldn't be doing things that you're doing. You wouldn't be putting things on the internet that you're putting on the internet. Come on, somebody. Help me out here. I'm telling you when your life is truly a reflection and crucified with Jesus Christ, your life will bear the fruit of Jesus Christ and you'll be his true body and you'll be a reflection and a living epistle of who he is. Knowing and loving him, it changes everything. I tell you, to live for Christ means to die with him. Therefore, we got to understand to knowing him is loving him, and to love him changes everything. To say you're a Christian and not love the things he loves, to say you're a Christian and not be committed to the things he's committed, to say that you're a Christian and that you don't need the church in order to have a relationship with God, it's hypocrisy in its highest form. It's one of the deepest deceptions that there is, and I'm concerned about people. The culture has the audacity to actually think that they're smarter than God's word and, and his commands that he gives within scripture. This is why that Paul wrote, where is the disputer of the world? Who's gonna dispute against God? Has God not chosen foolish wisdom of this world? When they think they're wise, they're really foolish and they try to justify, figure this all out in their heads and they become foolish? He said, who can dispute the order, he's saying? Who can dispute the arrangement that God has chosen? Who can dispute the wisdom of God's principles and the wisdom of God's commands in Scripture? It's almost that this culture looks at the Scriptures as a smorgasbord. I just pick and choose what I want out of the Scripture, and I'll be all right with the Lord. I'm going to serve God in my own way. No, you're going to have to serve him in his way. You're dead to yourself. Somebody help me preach. It's almost like we think that God, uh, he uh, grades on a curve. 
Well, 60% of the people got it wrong, so 40% is an A. God don't, God don't grade on a curve, my friend. It's almost like we think we passed the test by comparing ourselves to what everybody else is doing. I want to tell you, don't follow the multitude. You might not like where they take you. Can I have an amen? In Luke 14 and 27, Jesus says again, and whosoever will not bear his cross, take it up and come after me. He will not and cannot be my disciple. Only a high-minded spirit would think that they could be on their own, not have need of anyone else, not have a need of the church. Only a self-righteous, arrogant, prideful, haughty spirit would have the audacity to think that one can skip and avoid and disobey God's commands, resist his divine order, and still claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's, it, it's deception. We see that the culture loves the celebration, but they hate the covenant. They love the celebration, but they hate the crucifixion. They love celebration because celebration, it's exciting, it's fun. Our, our, our culture's hooked on an emotion. As a matter of fact, they're even saying now that 80% of, of the young generation in this culture, it's come out in a, in a news article that was sent to me by Bob Bennett. I read it, and it said that 80% of them would rather not work and be unemployed than work a job they didn't like. They don't want to be put out. They don't, you know, if I, well, I, I don't want to work. If I want to tell you, you know what my daddy done? Buddy, you're going to work. And it didn't matter what kind of work it was. I had to work in order to be able to have the provision that I have. And can I tell you, there's a lot of things, guys, we don't like. But I want to tell you, sometimes it's the hard, rough things, knocks in life that brings us to the lessons of stability and maturity and cause us to grow to produce fruit. No tree likes to be pruned, but it's necessary in order for it to grow. This culture is all about spiritual intimacy, but they're, they're void of spiritual reverence and obedience. Intimacy's in while reverence is out. What do I mean? This is where it gets heavy. We can see that this approach has even changed the church culture. It's even changed how churches worship across America. Frankly, I want to tell you something. We have become way too uh, familiar with God. Our culture has become way too familiar with God. Our praise and worship in America is almost completely devoid of terms that tr describes his transcendence. You know what transcendence means? His majesticness, his mightiness. Can I tell you that thunder still claps around his throne? Can I tell you lightning still proceeds out of his mouth? Can I, come on somebody, can I tell you there's still seraphims that's crying around the throne, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. He's not only a God of grace, he's a God of holiness and justice and judgment. He's a God of greatness, he's a God of power. Can I have an amen? Our praise and worship in America is almost completely devoid, and devoid of terms that describe them transcendence of God. The wonderful and rich theology that was expressed in the spiritual songs and hymns of the past is almost completely gone in most church services across America. The church culture in many settings has become nothing but a pep rally and, and not a worship service where everyone stands for 40 minutes, put their hands together, and they sing their love songs to Jesus where God is now presented as Daddy God and Jesus our buddy and our lover whom we greet him with a sloppy wet kiss. This isn't to say that intimacy isn't important. Of course it is. 
the intimate language in the modern day, one writer said the intimate language in the modern day praise music, as in at least some cases, is inappropriate and it's borderline. He went on to say, the manifestation of such events is people attempting to do publicly what is only appropriately privately. Without expounding on this very much, now hang with me, the bottom line is there must be a private component to our worship that prepares us for public worship. Salvation is a lifestyle, not just an event. Worship is a lifestyle, not just a service that we come into once a week. Amen? Private worship is the place of intimacy. It's where God deals with us in a way. He breaks our heart. He causes us to just get exuberant within passionate worship with him at times. It is that prayer closet. It's that place of sacrifice, that place of cross-bearing, that place of dying out to self where our hearts are convicted and our spirits are sanctified. But what has happened in the American culture is we have, we, what we should be doing privately, we are doing now publicly. My first thought was to do an illustration here this morning. My wife didn't be able to come because she's very sick. But I was going to do an illustration, and I thought, no, I better not do that. I was going to bring her up here right before the service, before I preached. I was going to give her a long, deep, passionate, sloppy, wet kiss. I mean, lay one on her. Woo, I kind of like to do that. And you know what would have happened? That would have been the last thing that I would have ever done in my life. Because when my wife got me home, it would have happened only in one service. It wouldn't have happened in both. I guarantee you that. Why is that? We now have a one-dimensional and almost exclusively emotional connection with God reflected only in public worship. Our worship has become all about us, how we feel, what we want, what we want to get out of it. And let me tell you, that, that kind of worship is far too shallow. Not only is it shallow, but is it promoting a less than reverent view of God and is producing a cheap grace. We have an open, intimate love song sung with passion from, passion from lips that have never shown love to God privately. Let me ask you something. What do you think would happen if the only time that you showed any kind of love or an expression of love to your spouse when you only done it publicly and you never done it privately? I know what my wife would say. My wife would say, buddy, if you can't do it privately, don't be doing it publicly. Come on now. Think of how God must feel. No preparation, no prelude, no commitment, no sacrifice, no self-denial, but we want to walk right in here every week on a Sunday morning publicly, and we want to present our praise, wanting to touch us and love us back when we have never had any kind of romance with him throughout the week. God help us. The superficial single dimension of God is deadly, and in essence, it is actually worldliness. You remember when Nehemiah, who was a regular uh, tender in the presence of the king of Persia, and yet he was not allowed to be familiar with the king, and he was to stand a great distance from the king. That was demanded. Why? Because subjects were not to sit the mood of the court. Only the king could do that, and they were not to get too familiar with the king. He's the king, and that king was to set the mood of that whole court. One time, Nehemiah walked in, and when he did, the king looked at him and said, Oh, Nehemiah, what's wrong with you? He had a sad countenance, and the king read it which was very serious. And Nehemiah's heart sunk and he was fearful, the Bible says. And the reason he was fearful because he allowed an expression upon his face that would set a mood in the court and that was only the king to do that and that could have resulted into death. We try to change the atmosphere in Pentecostal churches with our worship, but we do it in an approach of familiarity. 
Daddy God and Buddy Jesus. And we come in half-heartedly. And then we wonder why God doesn't do the things that, that he's done in the New Testament with signs and wonders and diver miracles. We fail to see that he is King of kings and Lord of lords, the Almighty God, the everlasting Father, the creator of the heavens and the ends of the earth. We forget what Isaiah 57 and 15 says. For this saith the high and the lofty one, the one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and the holy place with him who has had a broken and contrite spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You know what that Bible says? The Bible says that God dwells in the high and the lofty position. He's holy. Come on, somebody. And who does he bless? Those that's broken and contrite who come before him in humility and reverence. It's in our private intimacy with God that causes us to be able to approach the throne of God with boldness because it gives us the confidence. It gives us confidence in him. Now instead of us just singing love songs after we've been in the presence of him privately, not just singing the things of intimacy, not just having a jam session with him, now because of that private intimacy, things change. We come before his presence with singing. We enter in his courts with praise and we enter in his courts with thanksgiving and we praise his name. We praise him because he is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. We praise him because he is the preeminent one, the almighty one, the everlasting one, the prince of peace. We proclaim him as God. We worship him for who he is instead of what he can give us. He sets the tone of the court. He sets the atmosphere as he wills, as he responds to our worship. Have you ever thought of the lack of the moves of God could be contributed by our lack of reverence to God? Our public worship must be reverent worship and not just a casual approach or familiar act that, or process that we go through or it doesn't need to become a tradition. Our songs are to be about him, his majesty, his splendor, his greatness, his infallibleness, his power, his might, and his faithfulness. This is the kind of praise that will cause the smoke to inhabit the sanctuary. It's the kind of praise that will cause fire to fall on people. It's, a, it's, the same that, uh, it's the same praise that cause glory to shake buildings. That's what God's wanting to do to America. He's wanting to find a people that'll come in with holy reverence, who understand who he is. Yes, yes, he's all of those other things that we sing about, but those things that we should do in private, and when we do them in private and we have that intimacy and we have that time of love with him, then we can come in boldly knowing who we are in him and then we sing about his greatness. We sing about his glory. We sing about his majesty. We sing about his power. We sing about his might. We sing about his strength. We sing about his infallibleness. We sing about his faithfulness. We sing about his holiness. God is a God that is great above all gods and there is none besides him. Oh, I pray for the day. I've been in those services. As a young teenage boy in my 20s, I remember being in my home church and the glory of the Lord coming down and a haze filling that place and 100% of the people fell on their faces on the ground in that church and was given glory. One woman ran to the halter and hit it so hard we thought it broke her neck. I want to tell you, oh God, return your glory again like that. But it was cause there was a people that came in with a holy reverence, understanding who they were coming before. They were coming before the king. They weren't coming in and approaching him haphazardly, carelessly, recklessly. They weren't just coming in and approaching him, being a familiar God. 
He wasn't familiar. He was close to them as they'd been sanctified in that private devotion with him. This is why we sing the modern songs like this. The splendor of a king clothed in majesty. Let all the earth rejoice. Let all the earth rejoice. He wraps himself in light and darkness tries to hide and it trembles at his name. And it trembles at his name. How great is our God. Sing with me how great is our God. And all will see how great is our God. The Godhead three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb. How great is our God. Sing with me, oh, how great is our God. And all will see how great our God is. A name above all names, worthy of our praise. My heart will sing, how great is my God. You're the name above all names. You are worthy to be praised, and my heart will sing, how great is our God. Would you just stand to him and give him that kind of praise for a moment? Would you just give him glory and say, you're a God above all gods. There's none like unto you. I praise you for who you are. I praise you, you majesty, our king, our Lord of lords, our king of kings, our prince of peace. We come before you recognizing your sovereignty, your holiness, your lordship. Oh, hallelujah. That's the kind of church he's looking for. That's the kind of people he's looking for. That kind of a spirit will turn around a nation. It'll cause the fire to fall. It'll cause the congregation to feel the presence of God. And there's that old song, and I'm not going to say it all. You know it. That's why we sing, Oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds that thy hands have made. I see the stars. Huh. I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. What happened to the psalmist when we come before his presence, praising him for his mighty acts, praising him for what he's doing, praising him, but no, we come in with the love songs that we should be doing privately. Now, I'm not against the love song here and there, but I'm saying when it's lopsided, we have lost the reverence of God and we've made a cheap grace where we can do whatever we want through the week and just come in here haphazardly and come up around the altar, throw up our hands and say, I'm here, God, now bless me. I've made it to church. I've done you a favor, God. You ought to be glad I'm here. I had a million other things I could have done, God, but here I am. Statistics are alarming in certain areas, and they're different in every area. Warren Harry had a high statistic where a big, big percentage of the congregation played games on their cell phones while the preacher preached. But they were active in worship. Ooh. What's happened to us? We've gone so far away from really understanding the God that we worship. We fail to see how great of a sacrifice, what kind of great privilege he gave us by sending his son to die on the cross for us. Do you not understand how shall we escape if we neglect such a great a salvation? Understanding that God himself was incarnated in human flesh 
took on human flesh and walked among us. And for 30 years, he's done, for 33 years, he done ministry and then was hung on a cross for you and I. Oh, how grateful this church are to be this morning. When we have intimacy that produces reverence, then we'll have resurrection power. Can I tell you, if we have the cross and no resurrection, we have no life. We're dead in our sins. If we have resurrection and no cross, we deceive ourselves by casually having a cheap grace that thinks that we're saved. But when we have the cross and the resurrection, we have life, we have liberty, we have happiness and peace. When I was a young boy, my dad had curfews on me. My curfew was midnight. Unless I would call him, and sometimes he was very lenient. I'd call him, hey, Dad, can I stay out to 2 to 3 tonight? Well, where are you at? Who are you with? What are you going to be doing? A lot of times you say, yeah, I'll let you do it. Against my mom, I hear my mom in the back. That was more lenient. He understood a boy. But if I'd call him and tell him where I was at, and he knew who, who I was with, and if it pleased him, he'd let me, you know, break curfew once in a while. And our culture is so weird. It wants no restraints. It wants no law. It wants to do away with police. It wants to say everything's okay. It's okay for you, Mike, to be a woman if you want to be. It's all right. Well, would he make an ugly woman or what? Have we, have we drifted so far that we don't understand what's taking place here? And yet the rules and the regulations and the principles and the standards that God holds us to in biblical scripture, they're not there to harm us. They're there to keep us free. They're there to protect us. They're not there to harm us. They're there to protect us. And every single one of my friends whose mom and dad just let them run wild, they're alcoholics today. They're in drugs today. They've been divorced five times. And I hate to say this, but many of them are dead. They're gone. Some died in their 30s. Some died in their 20s. Some died in their 40s. In my class alone, I don't know how many funerals I've went to. And almost every single one of those had a common denominator. They didn't like restraints. They wanted to do it their way. It led them down a dark path. I want to close with these words. Listen to Matthew, or uh, I'm sorry, I want you to listen to um, Patrick Henry, one more, or James Madison, one more time. We have staked the whole future of American civilization, not upon the power of government, for from it, but we have staked the future upon the capacity of each and all of us to govern ourselves, to control ourselves, to sustain ourselves, to have temperance, self-control, fruits of the Spirit, according to the Ten Commandments of God. And then Jesus in Luke 14, he gets serious with his disciples. He tells them a parable. Now, I'm not going to go into all that parable and break it down. You can read it when you get home. But in the midst of that parable, he looks at them and he says, you count your cost of following me. Am I worth it? You count the cost of what it means to be a Christian. You count the cost of bearing your cross. Just like the, when you sit down, he said, to build a house. 
No man don't set out and stand out and start building a house unless he considers the cost first, lest he starts it and can't finish it and people mock him. Count your cost. Are you going to build your house on sinking sand or are you going to build it on a solid rock? Are you going to build it on what you suppose or are you going to be obedient to Scripture? And really understand who God is. Come to know him personally. Not just have a knowledge of who he is, but to know him intimately, to know him by name. Come before his presence with singing. Enter in his gates with thanksgiving. Enter in his courts with praise. Magnifying his name with confidence because you're secure in your salvation. Again, can you not love him as he loved you? And how much did he love you? No greater love than this than a man would lay down his life for his friends. God commended his love towards you and while you were yet sinners, alienated from God, filthy, ungodly, dirty, outcast, no one wants you, he died for you so that you might become the righteousness of God in him. Mike, a lot of times we think we have to give so much up to be a Christian. Oh, I did, I gave up a lot. I gave up enslavement. I gave up bondage. I gave up lust. I gave up fear. I gave up anxiety. I gave up depression. I became crucified with him and then Christ lived his life through me and now I've gained everything that he gains because he's, I'm the heir of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Everything he owns, everything he has, I'm an inheritance of that. He died and lived and rose again, overcome everything. So now I have the inheritance of victory. I'm not saved in my sin. I'm saved from my sin. I don't have to get up and worry about fear. I don't have to worry up and battle lust. I don't have to worry up and mess with all that stuff. Why? I'm an overcomer. I serve a resurrected Lord. He's Savior. I'm a winner. Amen. Boy, you talk about somebody. I literally, I literally got the best on God. You know how sometimes you'll trick somebody and get the best out of it, you know? You know, I got the best out of God. You know why? I gave him me and he gave me him and I got the best of the trade. Amen. Woo! He took me who was nothing and I took him who's everything. Oh, the splendor of the king. The majesty on high. My Lord. My Savior. My Redeemer. My God. I don't know how many of you have ever experienced it. And I pray that you all do. But I know what it's like to see the glory of the Lord. I know what it's like to God flatten me on my face in the woods, in the house. I know what it's like to be in China with Randy West standing right beside my side, being hid, tucked away in a a room where we were hiding underground, the church was underground. And a little woman who couldn't read or write gets up and preaches the word of God. She could read the word, but she couldn't read anything else. And she preached upon the hands of Jesus, upon the feet of Jesus. Just a basic, simple, first grade sermon. And all of a sudden, the furnishings of the room begin to shake. The building begin to quiver and the furniture began to move across the floor 
the smoke and the haze of the glory of God came in the room. We all fell prostrate on the ground and didn't even know what took place, moaning and groaning and weeping for the, for the sovereignty of who God was. We get up and Randy West cannot even speak for another two to three days. I forget how many days. Couldn't even say a word. He was like a zombie. I'd say something to him and he'd look at me. <laughs> Just under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, that America would be visited like that again. But it'll take a remnant of people that are serious, that's counting their cost, that's willing to deny themselves and not casually walk in here and casually approach the throne of God, but come prepared. Come with your best. My wife made a statement to me the other day and I thought, oh wow, I didn't realize you'd done that, honey. Every morning, real early, she gets up and if she don't get up, Deborah will call and get her up. Early, early, early. She gets up, she gets her Bible, she gets her notebook, she goes in and studies, makes notes, makes journals of everything that she, she's done this for years. She has a little rug she gets and prostrates herself on and she seeks the Lord and she wakes me up 99.9% .9 every morning praying and agonizing before God. I've heard that for 30 some years of our marriage. But here's what she told me that I did not know. She said, every morning before I go, present myself before my Lord, I go into the bathroom, I comb my hair, I wash my face, I put my makeup on or whatever, I prepare myself, I clothe myself, I dare not go before him naked, and I go before him, presenting myself before my king. Huh. Oh, if we could get that in our spirits. If we could understand the seriousness of the hour and what it's going to take to revive a nation, to save our loved ones, we wouldn't be haphazardly treating the church and the things of the Spirit haphazardly, but we would come in reverently. Oh, God, without you, I'm nothing. I don't even have any offer of praise unless you put praise in my mouth. I'm nothing. I'm broken. I'm contrite. And with such a broken and contrite spirit, God won't despise. He receives us on the basis of our reverence. Reverence in Him. I'll ask you this morning, would you stand? This is different than Sunday morning service. I know it's Easter. You want to get back to your homes. We're not having service tonight. Remember that. And I know you got plans. The altar's open if you feel that tug. If you're not saved here this morning, I don't want you to leave here not saved. I want you to know the true Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to come. I'll stay up here a while and wait on you. And I'll pray for you. I want this body to at least take three or four minutes. Examine your hearts and lovingly and with humility, would you begin to just say, God, forgive us of our irreverence. Forgive us of our lack of preparedness. Lord, and just begin to make a commitment to him. Refresh your vows. Ask him to forgive you. Ask him to cleanse you. Say, so you're my risen again. We know this. 
1 John 1 and 9, if we'll confess our sin, our slackness, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Would you do that right now as a, as a, as, as, as a group, as a people? Hallelujah. Don't be condemned. Be free. There's a risen lamb willing to save. He came to the world to save you, not condemn you. He's here to deal with you, but he's here to love you through it. He's here to free you of all condemnation, all guilt, all sin, all darkness, all the shadows. Oh, would you just love him a moment? Oh, yeah, there's people really connecting with the Lord right now. If there's any that need to be saved, I want to give you a few moments just to come. I'm waiting on you. We'll pray with you, and we'll show you the way of salvation. And you can be free in Jesus' name. Sing it, John. And darkness tries to hide And it trembles at his voice Trembles at his voice How great is our God Sing with me how great is our God And all will see how great how great is our God. And age to age he stands. And time is in his hands. The beginning and the end. Beginning and the end. God in three in one, Father, Spirit, Son, the Lion and the Lamb, the Lion and the Lamb, how great is our God, sing with me how Shake someone's hand and tell them you're grateful that you're in the house of the and Lord with them. And I want you to leave here rejoicing of the risen Lamb, knowing who God is and giving Him and glory and honor and praise. Would you give Him one more hand clap of praise? May God bless you. Happy Easter. And he's worth